So, good people, good deeds, good works, being good people. Right? These are the typical answers to the question that is asked, how does one get to heaven? In fact, when, when people are just asked that, even people who don't believe in heaven, even if they go, man, I'm not sold, you said, but, but what if there was a heaven? What if, even if you don't know, let's just assume for a minute there, there might be a heaven. What would be the way to get there? And those answers we heard are the number one answer, hands down, every time, from people that are uncertain, or maybe even some people that are certain, they still go back to good works, good deeds, being good people, that's the way to heaven. And I look at this answer and I say, you know what, in some ways, it's a reasonable answer. I think it's reasonable. And you scour the world and you will find that that is the common answer, right? It doesn't matter if you're in Europe or in Asia or here in the United States, you go to South America, you go to Africa, there's going to be this assumption that basically good people are are the people that go to heaven. It is the most supported answer we will ever hear. And so the basic idea is that one day when we die, we will wake up and then we will see a scene just like this. We see this executive VIP entrance. And because and, and, this is this is velvet, my friends. All right, this is that is plush, baby. Right, and so we're gonna we're gonna walk up to this entrance, right? Pearly gates. We're done with pearly gates. So we get this VIP entrance. We're gonna walk up to this VIP entrance, and there we're gonna have Saint Pete the Bouncer, right? Just waiting for us to come, right? And then he's gonna be like, all right. So what's the deal? And we're going to say, well, I was a good person. I did good things. I was kind to other people. And what we all expect is for Pete, the bouncer, to be like, right on. Right? Or, okay, come on in, because I think he's probably from Jersey. Right? So, you know, like, it's just going to be that simple. And we go, that's how it's going to work. I mean, that's the assumption. Now, some people, that's not fully the assumption. In other words, there are some people that don't believe in St. Peter. They don't necessarily believe in the narrative of the Bible, but it still kind of comes back to the same thing. So it's like, if you have enough enlightenment and you're selfless enough, you can enter into the nirvana of the cosmos. Or if you hold to the law enough and you're rigid enough, you can enter into the shalom of Elohim. Or if you're determined enough and you are sacrificial enough, you can receive the virgins of Allah. It doesn't matter what it is. Most people in our culture kind of hold to this idea that, you know what, what counts is if I'm sincere, if I hold to what I hold to with some level of belief, if I'm just good enough and honest enough and kind enough and the scales balance right, well then in the end, I will enter whatever my existentialist heaven is. Right? Because I was sincere, I was faithful, I was good, I was kind. That is the message of how does one get to heaven. Now here's the thing. This is Satan's best sermon. His best sermon. See, we're under the assumption that Satan, as he operates, doesn't want to make much of heaven. As much as in our series, uh, we've assumed that he doesn't want to make much of the Bible or uh, much of the character of God being love. But what he loves to do is tag on to truths and corrupt them in such a way that it obscures the real truth. So who loves to preach heaven? Satan loves to preach heaven. He preaches it every day in a thousand ways to millions of people. And you know you've heard the sermon if you've heard people say, good people go to heaven. You know they've sat in Satan's church. If they've heard that statement, believed that statement, said that statement, that's the sermon. That's the sermon, right? In fact, it hits even close to home within Christianity, right? I mean, oddly, even in America, it's fascinating. If you look at polls, and you know, polls kind of vary from one pollster to another pollster, but basically what we find in America is about 70 to 85% of Americans believe in heaven. They believe in heaven. And of that number, only .005 believe they're not going there. Right? So... All these people believe in heaven. This very, very small fraction believes they're going to hell. And I want to meet that small fraction. You know what I mean? Like, like the pollster calls up, do you believe in heaven? Yep. You go in there? No, I'm, I'm bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, 
Like, you know, I don't even know what that's all about, but, you know, it's like, okay, that, that, but, but most people believe in heaven, believe they're going there. And, and then what's really interesting is right here in the clubhouse, right, right here among evangelical Christians, more than half of us statistically in this room, more than half of us in here now would say, yeah, Christianity is the way for me. I believe that's how I'm going to heaven. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that, but I'm not certain that's the only way. I'm not certain, right? And it's going to come back to the same thing, because if people are sincere, if they're devoted, if, 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 if they're really, really good, I just can't see how they wouldn't go to heaven, right? Even among us as Christians, and I think there's a number of reasons for what that happens. I think one is, let's just be honest, there's a lot of people we know that are wonderful. Right? They're wonderful people, but they just don't believe. Right? For whatever reason, you know, the Bible is just a little too sketchy, it's too exclusive, whatever else. But we go, they're wonderful people, I just can't believe that God would not receive wonderful people into heaven just because they don't believe this one core idea. This is in part why we sort of struggle with this notion. I think another reason is deep down inside when we think about heaven, we're required kind of by extension to think about hell, and hell kind of freaks us out, right? It freaks us out, we're uncomfortable with it, we're, we're just like, man, it's really a judging God versus a loving God, what do I do with that? And so we struggle at that level too, and I, and I think at the core, what the real problem we have is that when Satan preaches this sermon that good people go to heaven and we as Christians hear it, you ready? I'm just going to expose us a little bit. Here's the thing. He preaches good people go to heaven and we hear it and you know what? We want to believe that. We want to believe that to be true. Right? Even against maybe what the Bible may say, we go, boy, I really, I, I want that to be the case. And so more and more and more, we entertain that sermon. We play with that sermon. We kind of hold to that sermon. We start to excuse the other sermons that Jesus preached, and we kind of absorb this sermon that the enemy loves to share. So this morning, I'm not going to defend or try to build a case around the fact of, does he do this? Does he preach this? Or if he preaches this? I, I think it's a pretty healthy assumption to say this is the message he preaches. What I want us to do is look at three things like, well, why he preaches it, right? Why he preaches it. I want us to look at how it lodges under even our skin as Christians, rendering us a little bit more ineffective, a little bit lacking in passion. And then I want us to look at what we need to do about that, right? So that's the mission, that's the goal, and everything else. And so we're going to kind of look at all of that. I'm going to try to move as fast as I can, but again, you know, heaven and hell, not a small topic, all right? So... We'll see what we can do. Now, I want to start in the undercurrent of this, right? What is the fundamental undercurrent that we sort of have to deal with when we hear this sermon and why our heart at times goes, I want to believe that. I want to think that's true. Well, I, I think there's two cores behind this. The first is a reflective component. And the reflective component is when asked the question, right, how do you get to heaven? Most of us think good people, and in that reflection, we say, and I'm a pretty good person, right? Most people think they're at least pretty good, right? There's kind of different measures. There's uh, pretty good, there's good, there's really good. And most of us don't want to say, I'm really good, right? We, we even struggle to say, I'm good. So we say, I'm pretty good, a little less than good, but pretty good, right? So, right? So this reflective component in us, Man, I'm, I'm, I'm bad people. We think I'm good people. I'm good people. So that reflective agent is a part of the undertow. The other thing that's in there is the philosophical component. And the philosophical component is very different than the reflective. The reflective is how do I see myself? I see myself as pretty good. The philosophical component focuses less on heaven and way more on hell. And when it focuses on hell, what it does is it says, gosh, I, let me get this straight. So somebody lives their whole life pretty good at least, and they do that for 70, 80, 90 years, whatever else, and if they don't believe this one message, this one guy, right, if they don't believe that one thing, you're going to tell me that they are forever banished to torment and hell. Philosophically, that's repulsive. It's repulsive. 
philosophically it doesn't make sense. Philosophically, the punishment doesn't even seem to fit the crime. And so we look at this and we go, I, I think I'm pretty good. I think most people are pretty good. Pretty good should get you to heaven. And hell seems way too extreme anyway because that's philosophically just way too far out there. And so for all of this, we run into this problem where at its core, we say two things. I'm good. Hell's unfair. There's your narrative. And, and, and for years, you know, when I talk to people, that's what they, they say to me when I have this conversation. I'm pretty good. Hell seems really unfair. Right? And, and so Satan kind of takes that and, and, and plays with it. And, and he plays with it with these four inherent problems that we as human beings sort of face in relationship to this. So we're kind of drilling down right now, right, to understand this. So what are the four inherent problems we face? Well, the first is that we have a perspective problem. And by that, I mean we seem to lack it. Right? The second is a propaganda problem. And by that, what I'm saying is, we manage to believe it. The third is a law problem. And by that, I'm saying, we're awesome at breaking it. And the fourth is an emotional problem. And by that, I'm saying, we tend to think with that, our emotion, more than with our mind. Right? So, so these four problems and these inherent problems, Satan takes those, right? And it's kind of like he makes this mash, right? And then it ferments, and from that he has this elixir that pours out the other end that is foundationally um, heaven for everyone, hell for no one, call it done. Because when you think about perspective and you think about propaganda and you think about law and you think about emotion, all of that together just kind of comes to this conclusion. Right? And that's the challenge that we face. And so, how do these things look? These four things. Perspective, propaganda, law, emotion. All right? I'm going to run you through these real quick. First, the perspective problem. Right? The perspective problem is really pretty much the thing we've been talking about up to this point. Right? From ground level, from our point of view, when we look around at our neighbors, our friends, co-workers fellow students, whatever it is, we look and we go, people are at least pretty good. Maybe good, maybe really good, maybe saintly, right? We might even meet a saintly person. But, but for the most part, we don't look around and go, oh, that person's evil. Even your ex, who I know, right, you might be like, oh, no, my ex is evil. And I'm like, like Hitler drinking the blood of puppies evil? And you're like, no, not that evil. Just difficult pain in my side evil, right? I'm like, oh, so not so evil to warrant hell. And you'd be like... Okay, maybe not. You know, like, but even that person, you'd be like, oh, I don't think they're going to hell. I don't like them, right? But we don't think that because, again, our perspective from ground level is everybody is pretty good, basically good. So it's not a stretch for us to think that when they die, again, comes to the velvet line, and whomever's there opens it up, says, come on in, you were pretty good, at least pretty good. Even you, ex, right? You were pretty good still. You get in, right? seems reasonable that's our perspective so we sort of glob onto that then you build into that the propaganda problem and the propaganda problem this is a weird one you know i, I could do a whole message on three different forms of propaganda one set of propaganda that satan loves to capitalize on it, it's just the one we're talking about right people are generally good that's sort of our premise he loves to capitalize on that propaganda second form of propaganda he loves to capitalize on is pitting heaven against hell as one place is a drag and the other place is cool Right? So he loves this one. He's like, hell is a rager. Right? Hell is a big party, man. You're slamming Jägermeister and Red Bull, and you got your Zippo lighter, and ACDC's banging out hell's bells. Right? It's like, hell rocks. And then there's heaven, and heaven's like, it's like a game of spin the bottle under fluorescent lights, and your dad's the chaperone. It's no fun. It's, it's an absolute drag. That heaven, right? They make you wear a diaper, you float on a cloud, you pay a harp. You can't even play a harp, you know, but that's what you do in heaven. Heaven bites, hell's raging, Angus on the guitar. Hell's bells, right? So it's like, hell, I want to go to hell, right? Heaven, no. Heaven is like, like a retirement home. I don't want to go, right? Right? That's it's propaganda. But this other piece of propaganda is not... The propaganda of heaven and hell. It's the propaganda of how we envision when somebody dies, the immediate series of events. Right? Here's the propaganda. Propaganda is somebody has 70, 80, 90 years of their life to make this decision for Jesus. 
but they don't make that decision. They go, no, I got doubt, I got science, I got this, I got that. There's too many religions to compete. I can't tell which is which, everything else. So I don't, I don't, I don't decide because I just, I don't know. Or, I, or, or I'm even angry at this notion of God, whatever the spectrum of non-belief is. But they do that and then they die. And then the next thing they see is God. And when they see God, everything opens up. Their eyes are open. Their mind is open. They totally get it. The proof is right before them. And they go, I didn't realize. I didn't know. If I would have known, I would have believed. And there's God five minutes before saying, I love you so much I sent my son. But now that you're dead, so sorry, too bad, off to hell. This cold, cruel God is there clawing. No, don't drag me to hell. And God's like, too late. Right? what people think it's like the end of the movie ghost right he just gets drugged to hell and this whole crowd right here says ghost what is that um man i'm getting old right but that but that's that's the way we see it right that god is bipolar one minute he's loving you die suddenly he's just just and they're begging please forgive me please forgive me it's up too late go to hell Right? That's the image that a lot of us even believe of those crossover seconds. And so we have that problem. We have a third problem, which is a law problem. And the law problem is kind of a problem. In other words, there's some law issues we're fine with. There's other law issues we're not so good with. For example, um, here's a law issue that nobody is going to have a problem with. I don't believe in this room. And if you do, we need to talk afterward. You need therapy. All right? So... The law problem. If I have my Bible and I let go, what will happen? Does anybody question this? Then we don't have to meet. All right? Right? There's no question that there's a natural law at work. Right? It's just going to fall. I've drawn my Bible. Right? Natural law. No question about this natural law. And when we think about laws that are natural laws, we don't question the laws. We don't say, whoa, 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 I just don't believe the laws. That law was created by mothers to be superstitious so their sons won't get on the roof. That is not... That is not a real law. Right? We don't do that. Uh, we look at natural laws and we say they're just natural laws. But then strangely, when we get to supernatural laws... We go, oh, now these are suspect, right? Uh, These ones are different because, again, we we can't really know for sure. So there's suspect laws. And so uh, when there's a suspect law, we'll say it's not really a law. It's more of an opinion. Now, strange, uh, I've read the Bible a few times. There's this word that comes up a lot. It's this word law, right? It's like this thing that communicates something very simple. A law is fixed. A law is immovable. A law is unchanging. It's a law. God gave lots of laws. Right? But we look at those laws and go, no, no, no. See, those laws are different than the law of gravity because these laws should be governed by other things too, like my sincerity or my ignorance or by um, you know, healthy doubt. I, you know, if, if it's healthy, it, that should bend the laws eventually. If I'm devoted, even though I might be devoted to something else, let's say I'm very devoted to the opposite of gravity, that this should float. I could be really devoted to that. But if I was wrong, shouldn't the devotion of believing it go up be okay if it falls? And I go, well, I just had the wrong devotion to the wrong thing, but it's still devotion. Right? That's where we start to mess with the laws. We go, some laws are less laws, especially spiritual laws, and so we have this law problem. So if the sign says, do not walk... I go, I shouldn't walk, right? If the sign says, repent or you will perish, I go, well, that's different. That's a speculatory law, right? Imagine if the sign says, do not walk, and I go, oh, sweet, so I can roll. That misses the whole intent of the law, right? It doesn't change the nature of the law just because, well, I interpreted it this way. I thought it was that way. I figured I could do it this other style. Rolling's great across the street in high traffic, right? So I'll die instant, right? So it's like, We have a law problem. And Satan, he plays to the law problem as much as he plays to the perspective problem, as much as he plays to the propaganda problem. But then last, we have the emotional problem, right? And this builds from the previous three. So it kind of goes like this. If people are generally good, from my perspective, and it seems like for God to be loving one second and totally wrathful the next and dragging them off to hell, that's craziness. So we believe the propaganda 
And then we look at the law and we go, well, the laws of the Bible are a little more speculatory than the laws of nature or physics. And so you can't even know what the laws, maybe with that, because the laws are a little uncertain, even though they're said clearly, they feel uncertain. So again, my doubt or my ignorance or my sincerity or devotion to other things should override the rigidity of those laws. With all of that, then you arrive at the emotional problem. And the emotional problem is where you look and you say, you know what, based on all of that, and then based on the severity of hell, hell just feels wrong. It just feels wrong. It just feels too intense. It feels too disproportionate. It's troubling. And, and, and here's what's so interesting about that. Um, you know, people who are asked if they believe in heaven, it's a large percentage. People are also asked, do you believe in hell? And it's still a majority of Americans. It's a smaller number than those who believe in heaven, but a majority of Americans believe in hell too. And, and as I thought about this more, I thought, you know, I don't think the problem is so much we doubt the existence of hell. I don't believe that's really the fundamental human problem. I think the real core problem is that we are troubled by its concept. It's not that we doubt its existence, we're repulsed by the idea that it might exist. We find it so viscerally um, unpleasing and in our thinking so radically um, uh, cruel that from that emotionally we sort of just go, there's just no way. There's no way. In the end, it's, it's got to be like the... the kind of divine GPS system, right? So whether I believe nothing or I believe something in the United States or I believe something in Asia or something in India or something wherever, don't worry, in the end what's going to happen is I get really close to the velvet rope is I'm going to be taking my path and then suddenly it's going to say, ah, recalculating, right? So, and it gives me a new route. It's just divine GPS. It's all going to get me right to here, right to that one entrance somehow because... All the other options just, there's just no way. I can't believe that feels so wrong. Feels so wrong, right? See, all of that is our challenge. All of that. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking this message, but I want you to understand, um, there has been times in my life as a pastor that all of those I weighed and looked and I came to the conclusion of others at times that said, yeah, there's just no way everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell. I just There's no way. It's just too crazy. God's too loving. God's too helpful. God's too desperate for people to suddenly, when their last breath comes, to say, all right, big game changer. I've struggled with that. Right? I've come to that conclusion at times in my life. I'm like, yep, nope, no hell, no hell. And, and it's easy to do because, like I said, at least more than half of us are there at different levels, according to statistics. Go back a couple of years ago, there was a pastor, pretty well-known guy named Rob Bell, writes a book called Love Wins, right? This book that's basically like, hey man, in the end, everybody gets in. In the end, love wins, right? Nobody's in bad shape. And it's interesting because um, what that is at, at its core is we're just... We're preferring Satan's sermon over Jesus's. And, and here's why I say that. Jesus is a funny cat, right? Um, he's, he's loving, he's tender, he's caring, he's healing, he's feeding, he's nurturing, and he's clear. He's clear. And if you took all the sermons of Jesus and compiled them and you put them into topics, 13% of what he preached was on hell. 13%. If you took his storytelling, the parables, and you put all the parables out on the table, you said, all right, how big a percentage are the stories about hell? 50% of his stories are about hell. 50%. So when we look at that, we go, man, 13% of his overall message was about hell. 50% of the storytelling was about hell. I think we could safely say that if somebody said, all right, uh, Jesus, this is your first administration, four years, what is the focus of your policies? He'd be like, heaven and hell, right? Those are the focus of my policies. And so Jesus said much about hell, right? He advocated for hell, he taught hell, he warned of hell. He preached a lot of hell. Now, now what, what I think is interesting about this, this is where I, I speak to our honesty, um, 
for all of what Jesus has said in relationship to the topic, for all that he preached on the topic, how much he warned of the topic, we as Christians really freak out about the topic. Right? I mean, you got some of the over-the-toppers, right? Oh, fine, brimstone, woo! Right? You got that. Right? And we're not doing that. Not yet. Wait. Um, no. But at the same time, as Christians, we're really freaked out to use the word. I mean, we're really freaked out. Right? If, if we're talking to a friend... Right? And that friend says, oh yeah, I remember one time when I was like 17, I went to this church, it was all hell, fire and damnation. We don't go like, oh, well, you know, can I clarify some of that? We're like, oh, that's too bad. Right? Right? And, and don't get me wrong, I think some of that is too bad. I think some of that is not about the gospel, it's just about people wanting to rant. Right? That's true. But it's also an opportunity. Or there's even times, like maybe this is you this morning. You brought this friend to church. You're like, oh, you should come to our church. It's so great, everything else. And then I started talking about hell, and you're like, oh, no, he didn't. You're slinking down in your chair. They're here, and it's a hell day. Right? So, right? <laughs> True story, right? If I brought a friend to hear me today, I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just hell, man. Um, so, so, you know, we're kind of nervous about that. We can even share Jesus with a friend, and how strange. We will share about how Jesus can change your life, but we will never get to that whole, uh, he, he frees you from judgment. We, we sometimes even like to preach the gospel more from how it will change your life here than it saves you from a judgment there. We just, we just skip that part. In fact, sometimes we can even lead people to Christ without ever letting them know they turn their back on hell to do so which I'm like, I don't know what we're fully leading them to if they don't realize they're being led away from something. Right? So for us as Christians, it's hard because, again, Satan preaches the sermons. We kind of like that sermon more than some of the others. And we sometimes like that sermon at the cost of what Jesus revealed and what Jesus says and what the Bible affirms. And to be, again, completely candid, this is a sin equal to the sin of Eden. And it is because in Eden, what happens, right? So the enemy shows up and he says to Eve, you know what, you'll know good from evil if you just disobey God. And today, I don't think it's so much that we want to know good and evil. I think today what it is, is we want to determine right and wrong. Right? But it's still kind of a cousin to the same dilemma, right? And we want to decide the merits of heaven and the penalties of hell. And we want to make that decision as though it's somehow our decision to make. We want to have opinion on things as though somehow we get to pull a seat up at the table with God's like, all right, we're here to negotiate. <laughs> right? But it's kind of what we're doing. Ah, man, no. That, that hell thing, too strict. That heaven thing, too narrow. We've got to broaden this out, man. You need to have a better market share. If you just broaden this out, you'll get a whole big market. Asia's waiting. You know, like, that's... We think we could do that, right? We just negotiate this into broader parameters. We don't have that capacity. We just don't. And so what we're left with is saying, you know what, I have to look at this differently. I can't look and go, hell's repulsive, and everybody's good, and everything else. I have to get back to, okay, what is revealed, what is said. If I'm a Christian, again, if you're not a Christian, man, I don't, you know, your code is whatever it is. I'm not even here to weigh the pros and cons of whatever code. I'm just saying, as Christians, we hold to a code. We say we believe the Bible, we believe Jesus, these kinds of things. We hold to a code. And so if we hold to a code that is Jesus and his Bible, right, then we have to go back to the code and say, what does the code say? And so we're going to take these four things of emotion and perspective and law and propaganda and, and kind of run back through them with clarity, right? And so the first thing is correcting the emotional problem, Right? I mean, because this, this is sometimes how we feel. Hell just feels unfair. Here's, here's the thing about an emotional problem. It's hard because it's emotional, right? I mean, really? I, you think about, like, how often when you get really passionate about a topic, the passion's driving you sometimes more than the topic, right? So when we're talking about we have this emotional problem that hell seems offensive and repugnant and just doesn't feel right and doesn't feel fair, it's really tough to reason it out because it doesn't feel right and fair. But the only way we can correct that is to recall that we're not supposed to have emotion, and from emotion we create truths. What we're supposed to have is truths that drive our emotion, right? 
That's the order. At least that's the order of Christianity. Christianity is not a religion of first emotion. It is a religion, a faith, a belief, a conviction, or a creed that believes God has revealed truth, and from that truth it shapes how I feel. And so instead of saying hell feels wrong or feels unfair, we need to stop and say it doesn't matter how it feels right now. I need to know what does the Bible say. Once I know what the Bible says, then it can drive how I feel. And I want my feelings to link up with what it says. I don't want my feelings to challenge what it says. Right? So is Jesus clear? And did he give us truths that should drive our emotions? Yes. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 13, there's a scene where they're talking about all these people that go to sacrifice to God, these animals, and the local ruler slaughters them all. They all die. And so they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, these people were sincere as they went to give their offerings to God. What do you think about this? And Jesus' answer is, you too will perish unless you repent of your sins and you turn to God. Right? These are red letters of Jesus. This is a quote of Jesus right here where he's just letting us know, here's the truth to drive your emotions. Now, in this scene, people would say, whoa, wait, though, that's unfair. These guys, again, were sincere. They were devoted. They were giving offerings to God. And Jesus says, yes, I know, wrong offerings, wrong notion of God, wrong concept, wrong heart. And unless you repent, you're going to end up like them. You're going to perish. Right? This is just what Jesus says. And I know we go, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Make him stop. It's just what he says. I'm just the mailman, right? Here's your mail. Didn't write it. Didn't sketch it out. Didn't say, hey, God, you might throw in a couple of adjectives for fun. I didn't do any of that. Right? I just delivered the mail. So the mail is Jesus saying, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In fact, in his most famous verse in all the Gospels, in all the Bible, the verse that we teach little teeny kids to memorize at the earliest of ages, he said this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So you're like, yes, yes, this is it. For God so loved that he gave his only son. He says, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? So we go back to, it's not what I feel, it's what I know. And what I know then drives what I feel. And so Jesus said, here's what you need to know. You need to repent or you will perish. Here's what you need to know. God so loved the world that he gave me to the world that whoever believes in me would not perish but have everlasting life. Then he goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So clarity. I mean, this is so clear. This is why we have kindergartners memorize it. They're like, okay, we got it. Then we as adults are like, oh, I don't know. What does it really mean by believe? Right? What does it mean by the only Son of God? You know? I mean, like if I said, you know, I don't know, I'm the only blonde in my family. Oh, so who are the other blondes? I mean, like, only. It's really easy, right? Right? God's love of the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. It's so simple and easy and clear, right? Our emotions should flow from this truth. We shouldn't let our emotions try to override this truth. Now, some will say, but there's not enough evidence. There's not enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the only way. And then God says, well, that's really weird, because a couple of things. One is, like, several billion people over a few thousand years sort of believe what evidence is lacking, and so that's pretty good. On top of that, he says this in Romans. He says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Now, we can complain about that all day. Really? Come on. Really? Like planets, orbits, galaxies, armadillos, you know, like, that's evidence, Right? But, but when we see something beautifully handcrafted, a watch or a ring or a necklace or whatever it is, some beautiful piece of wood, we admire the fact that there's craftsmanship behind that. There was thoughtful, intelligent craftsmanship. Then we look at the whole universe and then go, eh, I don't know. Right? I mean, honestly, and I know, man, I've been there. I've been at that place where I looked up at the night sky, literally looked up at the night sky and said, there is no God. I've been there. And then luckily, God just grabbed me by the butt and poof, you know, like, what are you thinking? How much more evidence do you need? Right? 
Because here's the deal. The problem isn't an evidence problem. It's not the lack of proof. It is the want of sin and selfishness that keeps us from seeing. Right? It's not a lack of evidence. Right? And that's why God says, you know what? You can say there wasn't enough evidence, but in the end, I'm just going to say, yeah, there was enough evidence. Right? So he reveals truths that should shape our emotions. This is tightly connected to the next problem, correcting the law problem. Right? Like I said, God gave laws. First law was in Eden. What does he say in Eden? You can eat anything you want. You can chill, whatever else. That one tree right there just don't eat it then. Law. It's a fixed law. Right? The law existed before we existed. The plan existed before we existed. We are embedded into the system, and God says, here's the law. Just like you're born into the United States of America, the laws were here before you were here. You cannot impose yourself on the laws by your own account, with your own judgment, and your own way, and they don't apply to anybody but you or whatever. You just can't do that. So in the same way, they're plopped into Edom. The law exists. The law says, don't eat of this tree or you will die. They eat of the tree, they die. Law, consequence. Right? So the law is upheld. So then God gives another law, right? A way back. And the way God gives the way back isn't to say, you know what, I'm just going to pretend like the first law didn't exist. Because God doesn't break laws. God doesn't say, I'm just going to override gravity with another, another law and have two conflicting laws. God says, no, the only way I can change the effects of the one law is another law that doesn't override the first law, but creates a very effective and powerful way to fulfill the first law and save them through the second law. Right? So you get to the book of Romans. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of the one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this one man who is Jesus Christ. For the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over the many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Christ Jesus. Right? So here's the first law. Man, you sin, you die. We sin, we die. Second law comes in, not to override the first, but to be a second to remedy the problem of the first. And man, when you believe in Christ, the one and only solution, you're saved, you're redeemed, you're complete. Right? These are just the fixed laws. They're the fixed laws. It's how it works. That's why Jesus said with perfect clarity, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one. And it's so weird, man. Kids get this. They're like, yeah, that's right. Jesus is the only way. We as adults were like, well, what does exactly mean by come to? Right? We take this really clear law. Like I said, if we just took the don't walk, like enroll. I mean, it's that problem. Right? It's a very clear, simple law. But again, what's our problem? Our problem is when they're supernatural laws, we think they play by different rules. So let, let me give a different example. Imagine, for example, I meet this really sweet older lady who lives on, I don't know, the fifth, sixth floor of a building. And, and, and she has this problem, her refrigerator's died, everything else, and so they bring her a new refrigerator, they put it on the front steps, but they won't take it up to her, her place up on the top of the building. So I'm like, man, she's really sweet, she needs food, I want to do this for her, everything else, she's a great lady. So I start bringing that refrigerator up to the top of her place. And let's say I'm about three quarters of the way, and I'm kind of pushing, but I lose my leverage, and that refrigerator topples down on me, and I go crashing down to the bottom of the stairs, and I'm busted up, broken, and traction, everything, just a big, fat mess. Is it my place then, at that point, to start debating the laws of physics? Right? Do I have any room at all to be like, but no, wait a minute. Gravity should have considered my sincerity. Right? I mean, I, like, you think about it, right? Like, gravity should have realized, I'm taking this to a sweet... I'm not Wiley E. Coyote trying to kill the roadrunner here. You know, I'm... I'm taking a fridge to a nice lady. And, and I didn't know that thing was going to fall. So not only was I sincere, I was ignorant of certain things. I just had no idea. I had no idea. This is so wrong. Gravity should bend to knowing my heart, knowing my ignorance, knowing my doubt, knowing my sincerity, knowing my devotion to the sweet little old lady that just needs cold milk, right? Like, whatever. Or what I go, it's a natural law. It's, it's a fixed law outside of my sincerity or devotion or ignorance. Or it's just a fixed law. Of course I know it's just a fixed law. 
right? Or, or take a different one. Say I'm down downtown Seattle, walking down the street, and I see some sweet mom trying to get a stroller in the car, because those things weigh like 2,000 pounds, all right? So she's trying to get the stroller in the car, everything else, so I go booking across the street, and I help her up and everything else, and then here comes the Seattle police officer, and he's like, oh, man, I saw you just bolt across the street. You need to, take, you need to cross at the crossing. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I didn't know. You know, this woman was trying to get the stroller, and I was trying to be a good Samaritan and everything else. He's that's too bad. I'm going to write you a ticket anyway. And I can start to protest. Wait, this isn't even fair, man. I was being a good Samaritan, so I was sincere. And besides, jaywalking, I didn't even know you're not allowed to jaywalk and see. I had no clue that that was the law. Now, I could make my case. I didn't know. I was being sincere. I was unaware, everything else. And in the end, I still broke the law, right? So let's say I decide to protest a little bit further. I go, no, no, how would I even know that's a law? You know what he's going to say? Well, if you just, there's a book. <laughs> sure, there's a book. I'm sure there's a book. He's like, you can just go on, you know, you type it in, W-H-E-O-V. It's right there. There's a book. It gives all the laws. I'm like, okay, but I didn't know about the book. I didn't read the book. I haven't seen the book. I'm sure there is a book, but I don't know of the book. How come, how come you guys don't put signs? He says, well, we do. Like every four blocks, we put a sign. Don't jaywalk. Well, why wasn't there a sign right where I was standing at the time I crossed? Right? Does this sound familiar? Right? So it's easy to do that. It's easy to do that. What's crazy is the Bible is the number one bestseller of all time. Right? You can find it everywhere. People are aware of it. And I find more often than not, people aren't like, I don't know what the Bible says. What they do is, I know what the Bible says. I don't like it. Right? And God gives signs, but you know what? We're never going to feel like we have enough signs. We always want another sign. And another sign. And another sign, right? That's our problem. And so we can appeal to ignorance. We can appeal to devotion, sincerity, whatever it is but it's still the same problem. There's a law problem. There's a law that exists that's maintained, and my sincerity, my ignorance, my devotion doesn't change the nature of that law. I have to comport to the law, right? I have to come under what that law is, what the solution is. Now, the next part is to correct the propaganda problem, right? And again, go back to the propaganda problem. Here's this bipolar God. He loves me when I'm alive. He hates me when I die. When I don't know Jesus, I mean, this dude, like, get him on lithium. You know, like, this guy, he's a mess, this God. But again, that's propaganda. That is a misunderstanding of what happens when we die. Because like I said, the Bible never affirms the notion that when we die, we get there and we go, I'm really sorry, I totally get it, please forgive me. And God says, sorry, too late, too bad, so sad, go away. You will never find that in this book. Never. You'll never find anything even remotely close to that notion in this book. That is propaganda the enemy has sown for just forever. Now here's what is true. What is true is that people are sent to hell. That's true. Away from God's presence. That's true. Bible would affirm that. I don't want to take away from that. Here is what is equally true. That people are eager for hell away from God's presence. These are both true. When somebody extinguishes their last breath and they are before God, don't think for a second that they're, I get it now. What they finally do after a life of saying, I don't want it, is they see it and they go, now I'm sure I don't want it. Right? That's way more the image that you have in the Bible than the image of their drug off, kicking and screaming and repenting along the way. Let me explain how this works. So, um, we were made in the likeness and image of God to populate this world, to expand Eden, everything else. So we were perfectly crafted to the world, right? So we were like hand-to-glove when it came to humans and the planet. And we had this mission, this calling, this purpose, and everything else God had built for us. But in our rebellion, we decided to scrap our purpose and exploit God's resources, right? So God gave the resource of procreation and sexuality for marriage and we decided to exploit it for all sorts of other things and God gave us the land and we sometimes choose to exploit that for all sorts of gain and purposes and idols and recreation that's more about me being pleased and God being glorified everything else so this world we've sort of taking a, taken advantage of it as we've lived right so, so that's the environment and then in that there are two types of people uh, there are some that in the middle of kind of taking from God's creation 
realize that they were created for God's glory and God's purpose. And so in that they go, man, I realize that this message of Jesus is true. I realize that I have been sinful. I realize that it started in Eden. I realize that I'm taking advantage of all that God has made and I want to be right with God again so that I can worship Him for what He's made. That's one group of people. The other group of people, they hear that message, they hear Jesus, they hear the gospel, they hear the Bible, they hear whatever else, and they go, no, 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 I don't believe it, I doubt it, I'm skeptical of it, I just don't care about it, maybe I'm not hostile, I just have better things to do, any number of things, right? That's the second group of people, right? So you, you just have two groups, right? We love to think there's many, many groups, there's two groups always. Jesus says there's good and there's bad, there's light and there's dark, there's unfruitful and fruitful, there's only two groups ever for Jesus, ever, and so there's just these two groups. There's the one group that the light was shown into their life and they allowed it to expose their sin and they repented. And there's another group where the light shines into their life and they run. It's that simple. In fact, in John chapter 3, starting in verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so, again, it's like a spotlight in the world, and it shines on us. And for those who say, I don't want that, they dart back to another place of darkness, right? And they might even chase them for a while, and they shoot off again, and chase them, and they shoot off again. And it's just, it's like a spotlight, and they run from the light to the darkness. Because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to say, I'm sinful or wrong and God's in control and I want to worship Him. They don't want to do that. They just want to do their own thing, whatever their own thing is, right? So they keep running from the light. Now, one day, last breath, they die, they wake up in the most intense environment of light. Not just a spotlight that's pointing out their sin in different places. Because in this world, we can run from the light to a lot of dark places. We just can. It's pretty easy to do in this world, right? But in the world to come, it's just light. But you spent your life running from light. You spent your life cultivating your sins and your biases and your fears and your anxieties and your pleasures and your wants and your dispositions and your idols and everything else. So you kept running from the light. Now you find yourself just in this vast expanse of light. So what do you do? You run for darkness. And according to Jesus, there's just this one darkness. He calls it outer darkness. And you just flee to the darkness. You don't want to stand in the light. It exposes you. And you don't want to be exposed because you want to keep it. So you run. You flee. And as much as God is scooting you along into your judgment, you are running away from God. You didn't want him in life. Why would you want him in death? You, you didn't believe in life. Why would you want to believe in death? You didn't seek him in life. Why would you want to seek him in death? Because all of that, I don't really need him, just sets in. Just sets in. And so we run to the darkness in the life to come. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says, They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from His glorious power. Here's the thing. is they flee to the darkness, because they don't want the light, as they run from God because they never wanted God, as they're going, there's one last thing that is plucked from their life as they run, and that is the image of God. Right? We're all born as those who house the image of God. It's just that our sin has caked it over and encrusted it. But when we flee, even that image is plucked away. That image of God in every person restrains us from being ultimately as evil as we can be. We call it common grace. It's this thing that keeps us from, at large, being, quote, pretty good. But we're not really good. We're just pretty good. But when we flee into the darkness, if we don't know Jesus, and that last part is plucked out of our life, you know what? The the person you know today is different without that image. We sometimes wonder, like, well, man, if I'm in heaven and a loved one's in hell, won't I weep for all eternity? But Jesus says he wipes away every tear. Why? Because we'll know that the person we knew is not the person that now exists. Because even God's gracious presence is absent. So here's what happens. Then they flee into this darkness, this void, Right? And because God's glorious power isn't there, all of God's creation isn't there, all the things that they spent a lifetime enjoying and cultivating and needing and wanting and using, they don't exist there. The only thing that exists in the great void that we call hell, this outer darkness, the only thing that exists is all of our wants, all of our passions, all of our fears, all of our desires, all of our addictions, all of our delights, every appetite 
exists, but no environment to use any of those appetites in. No environment, right? The man who had deep lust has no women. He has nothing. He doesn't have an internet connection. Nothing. Right? The woman who was worried about her physical appearance has no mirror, no brush, nothing to actualize on. Right? Just nothing. It's gone. It's a void. It's empty. You're just there by yourself forever fixating on how you can't get what you so desperately want. Because before you had exploited God's creation, now he gives you no creation to exploit. None. We choose that hell. And if you've ever seen somebody struggle with addiction, I think you've seen a micro hell. Right? You've seen a micro hell because what happens is when they get into an addiction, then they become fixated on they need that drug, they need that thing, whatever it is, right? And they fixate. And have you ever seen them when they can't get it? They fixate more and more and more and more. It crushes them, just crushes them in. They just keep wanting, 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 they can't get it. Hell. You just drive deeper into the darkness because you keep seeking and wanting your own appetites, your own wants, but you can't ever get them. That's hell. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I thought, said it well. He says there are going to be two types of people in the end who face God. There's going to be those who are the people who say to God, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And there's going to be others where God says to people, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Right? So when people go, oh, God just sends them to hell as they're kicking and screaming. No, they run to hell. They run to hell because they didn't want God. They didn't desire God. They didn't seek God. And that just stays for eternity. And I don't know about you, but all the images of fire and brimstone and torture and everything else, I go, there is nothing scarier than to think I would be by myself wanting what I can't have forever. I don't need, I don't need God's punishment for that. God's punishment is that. It is that. And so we have to understand the propaganda and understand the truth. And then finally, we have to correct the perspective problem. The perspective problem is, again, how we see ourselves, right? So let's go ahead and bring up this first slide, Jim. Here's how we kind of judge everything. Evil, good, saint, right? And then on the spectrum, we see it in a certain way. Jim, go ahead and bring up that next slide. That's how we see it, right? We kind of go, all right, there's pretty good, there's good, there's really good, there's saint, and then there's this little sliver of evil. And then we start to kind of put the different people in our lives on the spectrum. Bring up that next slide. There it is right there. Um, <laughs> right? That's how we assess it. And I get it, right? Like Mother Teresa, saint, right? Two miracles and everything. So uh, then my wife, she's married to me. That's really close to sainthood. I'm... I'm a hot mess on a Sunday afternoon. All right, so uh, then Reese, because she's delightful, and she has to work with me. So when my wife doesn't have to live with me, Reese has to work with me. So she's on the good end there. Uh, Scott and Ryan, they kind of contend, so to speak. I'm not sure which guy's ahead of which guy. Both good guys. Me, I'm running, like, back end. All right, Tom Brady, he's... He's, like, that much in the green, all right? Like, I mean, I'm not... He's not in the red. He's not Hitler, all right? He's in the green. And I, honestly, I think with Tebow, he's probably going to drift toward good. Um, but we're hoping, right? So that's kind of the way we see the spectrum, right? And that's how we see it. So we go, hey, man, I'm, I'm at least in the good green, right? That's the way we were talking about earlier, the way people see things. Well, here's the funny thing. Jesus dealt with a guy that saw it the same way, right? So this guy rolls in with Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And so someone came to Jesus with the question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life, right? I want to be a good person. What good thing do I do so I can go to heaven? And then Jesus says, why ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. So we look and go, no, no, I'm on this, this spectrum, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm better than good. I'm whatever else. And then Jesus just blows it up. He says, oh, let me break your heart. Who's good? Only God. Bring up that next slide. Here's, here's our problem. Um, we can have our own little ground-level perspective, and God says, we're cute. We're cute because he still has a slide rule, and in a slide rule, it's really simple. He says, you want to be good? You have to be perfect. Good is perfect. Good is not pretty good, good, better than good. It's not even saintly. In fact, it's weird. If you think about, like, saintly, right? 
if, if, if Mother Teresa were alive today and we brought her on this stage and we'd say, you're a saint. And she would say, no, I'm the chief of sinners. See, the saints get that they're not saints by their actions. Right? Good, pretty good, less than. People think they're better than they are. The saints get that they're not. It's one of the weird dichotomies of it all. But the reality is good has to be perfect. And we're not perfect. We're just not. In fact, this is why Jesus says in verse 21, this is Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, remember the guy says, what good thing do I need to do? And he says, ah, there's only one that's good that's really good, and that's God. God's perfect. So if you really want to get to heaven, you've got to be perfect. So you want to be perfect? Go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Right? So Jesus just knows what's going on in this guy. I want to be a good person to go to heaven. He says, you just can't do it, man. You want to be good? Go be perfect. You want to be perfect? Let's start here, and we'll start working toward that. We'll see how you do. This guy walks away. He walks away because he knows. He knows. He's not ready for that. Here's the thing. Perfect cannot be achieved. Perfect cannot be achieved. It can only be recognized. It can only be received. That's what the good news of Jesus is all about. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, Old Testament sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, these things can never make those who approach perfect. What good thing? Well, you could do all 613 laws of the Old Testament, and you still haven't done enough to be perfect. You would have to think no impure thoughts, have no impure attitudes, have perfect clarity on every issue of everything in life, have violated nothing, having fulfilled everything to be perfect. You're not going to do it. And so there's no way we can be perfect, period, right? That's what he says. Still can't be perfect no matter how much you try, how many times year after year you go. But it says in verse 12, our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made his footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, the cross of Christ, he forever forgave those who are being made perfect and holy. Right? So in other words, we can't make ourselves perfect, but the cross of Christ for us can make us perfect. We don't do it. So who goes to heaven? Perfect people. That's who goes to heaven. Perfect people. Can you make yourself perfect? No. Can I make myself perfect? No. Can Jesus make me perfect? Yes. Am I going to be perfect in this life? No. But he makes me perfect for the life to come. Because I am seen in light of what Christ has done. Right? That's the message. I'll tell you a story. Yesterday was interesting. Um, you know, you guys have been praying, and it's been a rough few weeks and everything else, and, you know, just, you know, going up against the enemy, that kind of thing. And, and so yesterday I had a friend of mine call me, and he says, um, hey, could, could you come to the hospital? It's actually a friend from Spokane. He's over here. His sister's down from Alaska at University of Washington Medical Center. He says, uh, can, can you come and, and just visit with my sister? Um, a, a month ago, uh, she went into the doctor with a stomach pain, and she probably won't make it through this next week. She goes to the doctor like, man, you've got cancer in your kidneys. You've got cancer in your lungs. You've got cancer in your brain. You've got cancer everywhere. So Rob says, can you come and just talk with my sister? And, you know, she was a person that, you know, heard about Jesus, heard about the Bible, that kind of thing, just not interested, right? Rob would invite her to church, not interested, didn't care, any of that. And, and so I walk into the hospital room. I don't even know what I'm getting into, really. I don't, I don't have any idea. I met her once. That was it. And uh, so I get there, and I walk up to her, and I held her hand and gave her a hug. She started crying, and then she started just saying, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Why is this happening to me? I did nothing wrong. So I realized that my role was to be for her, her place to get angry at God. I did nothing wrong. And, and so we would talk and I'd say, I understand. And I was sharing some stories about last time I was on this floor, it was my best friend's 23-year-old wife who died right here on the seventh floor having their baby. I don't understand. Right? 
But she was relentless. I don't understand. I don't get it. I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to go, everything else. And so, you know, at one point, Rob's like, well, I just, I'm thinking about you, sis, because, you know, mom knew Jesus. Dad did not. Mom's with Jesus. Dad is not. You know, she said, I don't want to hear about that. Right? And, and, and so we just kept talking. And at some point I said, you know what? I'm a real fan of Jesus. I'm a real fan of Jesus. And you know what? Jesus knows what you're going through. She goes, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. I said, no, he really does, because you know what? Jesus was impaled to a cross. They beat him, and they slammed him to a cross for our sins. He knows how you're feeling. The book of Hebrews says he understands. So she was just... <sighs> so finally, you know, Rob came over to the bed, and I was sitting on the other side, and, and, and just, you know, you could tell she was just scared to death of death. Angry, frustrated, scared, not ready. But she had heard again. And so I said, can I, just, can I just pray right now with you? And Yeah, and so prayed for a couple of minutes. Uh, just God, your peace, your grace, makes you know you in a way that just changes everything. I mean, it was just obvious. She's just, she knows death is coming, and she's not ready. And, um, and then we said amen. And the most powerful transformation I've probably ever seen in my life, I was a witness to yesterday. And like, as soon as we said amen, she looked at me with eyes like saucers. And, and she looked at Rob, and she's like, what is it? 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 And we're like, I don't know. It's three. Uh, you know? um, yeah, and, and, and she's like, that thing, that thing. I feel that thing. I feel that thing. You know, and, and we're trying to understand, like, because she's just almost frantic about it. Like, this thing. And she goes, and she starts to say, why didn't anybody tell me this is what it was like? Why didn't anybody tell me this is what it means? This is how it feels. I had no idea this is what it is. And it was so obvious. The Holy Spirit had just swelled in her life where literally, man, 15 minutes prior, she was angry at God, ready to curse God, didn't want to believe in God. And the gospel of God where the Spirit goes, where you don't anticipate, floods a heart and the light goes on and she needs Christ. Just powerful, powerful moment, and, and literally like 20 minutes into it, she's like, the feeling, the thing's not left, you know, and we're like, it kind of sticks around, you know, and, and we kept talking, and she kept looking at Rob, and I go, explain it, explain it, we're like, we can't, it just is, just receive it, you know, and she's like, it's been 45 minutes, you know, and it's still here, and Rob goes, the fear is gone, and she goes, yeah, it's gone, right the uncertainty's gone. It's gone. She kept saying, it's gone. It's gone. And so we were like, well, what do we say? And she goes, I said, can I share this story at church tomorrow? She goes, yeah, just tell them the, the lid popped off. <laughs> right? It was great. So Rob's like, it's the boom thing, right? It's just the boom thing where the lid popped off. So, so here's the thing. You got this velvet robe and in the end there's going to be going to be a lot of people to come to the velvet robe right you're going to have the movers and shakers right you're going to have hans and his girlfriend ice right you know and they're going to come you know and they'll be like we made fashion you know we changed the world right so they're going to say i should be allowed to enter because this is what i do you're going to have a professor come, and he's going to come in his tweed jacket and bow tie and all snooty because he taught everybody everything. He's going to say, I brought education to the world, and this is why I should be allowed in. You're going to have poor beggars that had nothing in life, and they're going to come to the velvet rope, and they're going to say, I should be let in because, you know, I had a rough and bad, and nobody cared for me, and my parents abandoned me. It was so unfair. You should let me in. I deserve to go in because I have not had a good my entire life. There's going to be nice little old ladies that come and say, I was really sweet, really nice. I always love my grandkids. I should be allowed in because of these things. And you know what? As of this time yesterday, my friend Vicky would have come to the rope and said, I should be allowed in because I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. Right? That was at this time yesterday. By 3 o'clock today, Vicky can come to this rope very different. Because every one of those people that are going to come to the rope, there's just one word that counts. One word that counts, right? Each of them, they're going to come to the rope and they're going to say, I did, I gave, I served, I bought, I cared, I whatever. Vicky will now come and say, you. 
That word makes all the difference. That word makes all the difference. You earned it. You did it. You went to the cross. You took my sin. You took my shame. You took my guilt. You gave me righteousness. You gave me life. I can get in here because of you, not I. That's what counts. In fact, I close just reading the book of Revelation. Great book to end with when you've done heaven and hell. All right. And you've gone well over an hour. Okay. He says, Then I saw a scroll. And in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel, and he shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal on the scroll and open it? Who can reclaim the world and reclaim lives? It says, But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. So then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne. He has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so I saw the lamb and he looked as though he had been slaughtered. But he was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and they began to sing a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break open its seals, for you were slaughtered and your own blood has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on earth forever. And then I looked and again I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders and they sang a great and mighty chorus worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea they all sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne to the lamb forever and ever and the four living beings again said amen and the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped the lamb and after this I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And one of those now is named Vicky, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hand and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you for your conviction. We thank you for our time together where we had to go to some difficult places to look at some difficult things and be reminded that you alone save. We've gotten so soft and so sentimental and so just, I don't know, human that we've lost sight of what you've done and how serious it is. We need you and love you and praise you in your name. Amen.